KSA Radio with you, our family. I'm Rion, and this is what happened on the Workday Jive in the week of October the 19th. We took a look at the behind-the-scenes stories of the new Sure album, Dancing Queen. KSA Radio with you, our family. I'm Rion, and we're talking about the one and only Sure who just released Dancing Queen, a new album filled with ABBA hits. Thanks to her record label, Warner Brothers Records, we got the opportunity to share some of the behind-the-scenes stories about the album. Now, this is Sher's 26th studio album and her first in five years, following Sher's Closer to the Truth in 2013. The album's title, Dancing Queen, references ABBA's 1976 song with the same name. It follows Sher's appearance in this year's musical form, Mamma Mia, Here We Go Again, based on the music of legendary group ABBA. While recording Fernando and Super Trooper shortly after the movie, Sher hinted on her Twitter account that she might be releasing an ABBA album. And of course, fans went wild. Finally, here it is. I think the biggest question would be, why did she decide to record an ABBA album? I really have no idea. It, I didn't plan it. I don't know even how I did it. I don't know why I did it. Like everyone's asking like profound, what did you think? I didn't think anything. I don't know how it happened. I don't know how I started it. I just thought one, I thought this might be fun. And I think I even came home and I was talking to Jen, my assistant. And I said, Jen, what do you think if I did a cover album of ABBA? Which sounded stupid as I was saying it. I've never done a cover album of anybody, and ABBA and Cher do not sound like a match made in heaven. But then, I did it. She further states, After forming Mamma Mia, Here We Go Again, I was reminded again of what great and timeless songs ABBA wrote. So does this mean that she's an ABBA fan? I remember, you know, Waterloo and 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 um, Mamma Mia and Dancing Queen. But then... I saw Muriel's wedding, and then I was hooked. Then And then I went to see their play three times and loved the whole thing and don't even remember the play, truthfully. I mean, when I saw the movie, I thought this must have been what the play was about. All I remember were, was dancing at the end, but I loved it. I, I took everyone to see it. I had to drag all my friends. They thought I was so uncool, and then they were dancing at the end, too, and I saw it in two continents. ABBA's music is absolutely not only unique, but also eternal. So it must have been an incredible experience recording it. Speaking about the experience, Sher says. Well, Mark came kind of with just kind of click tracks, but with some music on it. So I knew what I was doing, but nothing, you know, it was bare. The tracks were bare. So I, you know, put vocals on on them and then so there were just really the vocals and then mark went away and did all the stuff so i just you know he gave me bare bones to sing to and then he took them away and and made music and then i went to england and did some polishing up and then i actually did some other polishing up because i there was some stuff on dancing queen and uh winner takes it all that i just couldn't get and it wasn't the highest notes either. I kind of sailed through those. But it was um, a couple of the other 
parts, not many parts, just about four. So I had to do that, and, and I had to do something in winter. And I went to New York to do that. And then Mark took it, and Mark just started to put stuff on it, and it was good, you know? Despite Dancing Queen receiving acclaim from most music critics, Shear says the song were harder to sing than she ever imagined. The recording process also did not prove to be an easy one. There were some real difficulties during it, Shear explains. We've been working and working, and I was in mastering with Stephen, and so he said, I'm going to put all the songs together in order, and you listen to them. And I was interested in how they would go one into another, because I thought this might be hard. I hope we've picked the right things. So I get to one of us, and I go, this is not the right song. This is not the right one. This is not the right one. So I was calling everybody and, and said, you guys, this is not the right one. We had worked on them so many times, you know, we had different versions, like the A-22 or the A-23, whatever. The one that we wanted, we couldn't find, and it had been it was in another, I don't know, everything's so complicated and digital, and I don't understand any of it. So it had got into another file, and I was freaking out because I only liked the one version because... The others softened it up, and I liked it in its original rough form. Not pretty, not perfect, just its rough form. So we found it. An interesting fact about Dancing Queen is that some of the parts of the album were recorded in Sher's bedroom. When asked what that was like, Sher comments. We've done this a lot. Mark is in one room. He sets up the booth in one room, but it's not a booth anymore. It's just a computer and some you know, some speakers. And then in the next room, you know, we baffle off part of it and got the mic and we work. I'm in my Ugg boots and a pair of old, uh, either Adidas or, or, um, or, or sweats and um, a sweatshirt and my hair up in a clip. KSA Radio, where you are family. I'm Rion and we are talking about gay icon Sher, who just released a new album of all ABBA hits called Dancing Queen. Courtesy of her record label, Warner Brothers Records, we got the opportunity to share some of the behind-the-scenes stories about this legendary album. She says that even though it wasn't an easy album to do, she is extremely happy with how the music came out. I'm really excited for people to hear it. It's perfect time, she said. When asked what exactly people can expect from the album, Sher replied with saying, it's not what you think of when you think ABBA, because I did it in a different way. But exactly how did she put her personal touch on the songs? Well, first of all, everyone said, don't do it. Don't do Mamma Mia, don't do um, Waterloo. It's too, you know, those songs are just too done and too associated and you stay away from them. So, of course, that's the first thing I did. It's such a, it's such a teenager song. And so I just became a teenager. It's like if you listen to the lyrics, it's like being a teenager. So you have to kind of just let yourself be that. And, and also Waterloo, too. They're like teenage songs. So you've got to be able to access that, you know? And I'm immature, so it was easy. Fans went crazy when Sher released a teaser of the album's first single, Gimme, 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 A Man After Midnight, on her Twitter account during August. Now, the song was first digitally released on the following day, and it peaked at number five 
on the Hot Dance Club Songs chart. The second single, SOS, was digitally released later the same month. Now, to promote the song and the album, Sher performed on the Ellen DeGeneres show in September, followed a few days later by the music video. Like most of the tracks on the album, she had a very different approach to SOS. I approached it more afterwards. I gave it much more attention afterwards because I started listening to it because they're going to release it. So I started to listen to it from a, is this good enough? How is this? Is it, is it fun? Because that's what we were talking about is putting out something, another song that was kind of fun. And then, because, you know, the beginning starts off kind of low and not too up, and then SOS comes in. But I thought, no, this is, I like this. It's good. I think this could be something that people could like. But, you know, I don't make approaches to songs, really. I just go to the microphone and see what comes out. And I know that, like, it's like with acting. You get the words, and then... You say the words, and you and you try to be honest, and and what comes out you hope is honest work, and that's how I approach singing. I don't tr I don't have a style. It's just you do you do things. I mean, it's like when I tell you I wasn't planning this album. It's a surprise to me that I just thought I'll just do this. Speaking about Chiquitita, one of the other tracks on the album, she says. The story is about this one woman that's telling her friend that, you know, I'm the person that is here for you and I know you're going through a hard time. It's a really, you know, it's a woman's song that you understand if you've ever had a best friend. So, so that wasn't hard at all. It was hard to get it perfect, but it wasn't hard to do it. The album almost instantly became a commercial success when it was released at the end of September, debuting at number three on the US Billboard 200 with sales of 153,000 copies within the first week. Dancing Queen also debuted at number one on the US Top Album Sales Chart, making it Cher's first number one album on that chart. Critics met its release with acclaim. Gay Star News gave the album a positive review saying, Dancing Queen is about fun entertainment dizzy abandonment and she knows how to please a crowd while also acknowledging the desires of her own diehard fans. Nick Levine from Gay Times praised Sher's vocals, calling them glorious, still rich and wonderfully androgynous sounding and pointing out that they drive each song from beginning to the end. One last question remains while talking about driving and uh, I wonder does Sher sing in the car? And if so, why does she sing? Pretty much everybody knows on Twitter that I'm not a huge Cher fan. It's like I wouldn't, like if I was in the car, I certainly wouldn't put on Cher. You know, I'd put on Springsteen or the Eagles or some other, old, or Adele, you know. Mostly I, I would sing with Springsteen. <laughs> also, because my voice is so low, it's hard to sing with girls. You know, I have like Paul McCartney and Springsteen and I have the same range. So are those the next cover albums? No. <laughs> no. But you're not far off. Can you give a hint? Not even. That's as, far, that's as far as I go. In support of the Dancing Queen album, the 72-year-old gay icon is now embarking on the Here We Go Again tour. 
It's the first time that she will be touring Oceania since her living proofed farewell tour in 2005. The tour started on September 21 this year and will finish on May 18 next year. KSA Radio, where you are family, I'm Rian, and that was Sher sharing some of her behind-the-scenes stories about her new ABBA covers album called Dancing Queen. Our relationship and business coach Paula Quincy spoke to us about the discrimination in the workplace. KSA Radio, where you are family, I'm Rian, and this is Workday Jive, and I'm talking to our relationship and life coach, Paula Quincy. Paula, welcome back. Thanks, Rian. Good to be here again. And today we're talking about discrimination. Sure, that's a big one. It is a big one, isn't it? It is. And I especially think it us in the LGBTQ plus community. It's something that touches a lot. Yes, yes. Is there more than one type of discrimination that there can is, happen in the workplace? Oh, there is so much discrimination. Um, traditionally, and I'm putting myself out on a limb here, we have been conditioned that discrimination is a black and white thing, a race thing, because we've grown up in an apartheid era. But it's more than that. Discrimination can be an age thing. So nowadays, for example, you're seeing older people being forced to retire, either from a company policy perspective or from a restructuring perspective. So there's an age thing. There is also a gender thing, which is where the LGBTQI comes in, as well as male and female. And traditionally, when we think gender, we think male and female, but it's more than that. It's much wider than that, especially now, you know, when the transgender community and all of that is starting to come into much more open environments after old Caitlyn Jenner has paved the way for a lot of those discussions. There is also a cultural discrimination. Um, For example, different cultures um, being able to celebrate their faiths in different ways. So Jewish holidays versus Muslim holidays versus Christian holidays. But what about the other faiths and the other cultures and religions out there? And then, yeah, from a role perspective, there could also be discrimination. A role perspective. So, for example, women who are mothers and that want to take time off to either be with their sick children or go, um, you know, after they've had a child at maternity leave and how many numbers of weeks or months, paid or unpaid, they can take off. And nowadays there's a lot of discussion happening around dads from a paternity perspective as to you know, how much time they're allowed off um, that is seen as reasonable. And also now there's a little bit of discrimination happening around flexi working conditions and flexi hours compared to the overseas markets. Okay. (laughs) I think I got that look, you know, that look. Yes, Yes, I have that that look. look. So help me out. (laughs) So from a South African point of view, up until recently, traditionally flexi hours have been Traditionally around, well, you come in at six or seven and you leave at three or four. You come in at eight or nine and you leave at five or six. That's not really flexi hours in the true sense. Um, if you could look at overseas markets, um, a lot of them, so, so I think it's Sweden, they have a six-hour workday that they have implemented. It's legislated because they're trying to give families an individual work-life balance. In France, if I'm not mistaken, you can actually refuse, legally refuse to answer emails after hours. Sure. Yeah. So, and now also people working from home, remote access. Now you start getting discrimination around if people are at different levels of seniority and they have been given those permissions that they can work from home because they have remote access. So they can come into the office once or twice a week, but 
but people lower down the ranks are still expected to come in nine to five kind of thing. So it creates lots of conflict. <laughs> Looking at what you're saying to me here, is, I, I, I think it's important to define the word discrimination. Yes. Because clearly we have one concept when we talk about discrimination, but it is so much wider. What would the term discrimination actually mean? I think discrimination in the simple sense is when you are giving someone an advantage over someone else for whatever reasons, based on age, gender, culture, um, and they seem to get some sort of preferential treatment or advantage due to those reasons. Can all types of discrimination be dealt with in the same way? No, I don't think so. I think, uh, well, the way I like to look at it is, first and foremost, before anything else, before age, gender, age, sex, all of those kind of things, we are human beings. And if we can first start meeting each other in the middle ground as human beings, first and foremost, before anything else, and see each other on a humane level, then we can start dealing with the other issues respectfully. So if somebody doesn't allow me a gap anywhere because I have a tattoo on my face, that's discrimination as well. Yes, absolutely. I never thought of it like that. Wow. It's a whole new field. What's the most effective way to deal with it? I think it's about transparency. I think it's about having open, honest discussions. I think it's also about value systems. So particularly in the workplace, a lot of companies, and again, I'm putting myself out of the limb here, have these beautiful vision, mission, value statements on their walls in their reception areas and that, but are they really living the values in the organization? If we look at what's happened recently with, uh, from an ethical behavior perspective, the KPMGs, the Bell Pottingers, the Steinoffs, all of those kind of things, what happened to the values of the organization that they ended up in the situations that they are? If we're really living the values and we say respect is one of our values, then how do I respect you despite the fact that you have a tattoo on your face? What's that got to do with it? I like that. I am going to look at discrimination in a new way. Why do you think are reasons that people discriminate against one another? Let's use the tattoo again mm. as, as, as an example. I think we're on the roll with that one. Yeah, I think simple ignorance, to be honest, uh, because we are afraid to ask questions for fear of offending someone. So I know you have a tattoo on your face because I can see it. I may look at it and go, oh, I'm not sure I would do that because it's not something that I would do. But if I had to ask you, what's the symbolism? What's the meaning behind it that you decided to do that? That would give me greater understanding. And when I have greater understanding, I still have a choice then to go, okay, well, that's part of who you are, but it doesn't make you any more or less of a being because you have a tattoo on your face. So ultimately, the, the crux, the core here is to understand. Understand. Be open, be curious, and try not to judge. It's hard. Because we always do. And at first sight, we tend to, isn't it? We do. Within the first 30 seconds, we've already judged someone. someone. Just by the way they are carrying themselves, the way they dress, their body language, their facial expressions. Within the first 30 seconds, we've already judged that person. Is there any connection between the position held at work and discrimination? Yes, there can be. And this is where potentially bullying can come into play. So uh, uh, power and authority. We can use that to discriminate against other people. So discrimination is the ugly stepsister of bullying, basically. Yeah. yeah. 
pretty much. And we are still going to talk about bullying here yes. on this show. Yes. Does the reason for discrimination vary widely between different companies? I think it can, depending on the sector of the companies and also the workforce of the companies. So, for example, the mining industry versus, let's say, the banking industry. Completely different kinds of workforces, completely different industries, and potentially completely different opportunities for people working in those industries. And, you know, at the end of the day, let's be honest, businesses are there to make money. But at the same time, they shouldn't forget that they have people working for them. And without the people, they wouldn't be making the money. I think my last question on this episode that we're doing is, if I should find myself in a position where I'm being discriminated against, why do I do? If it's if you feel comfortable enough and it's a to have a one-on-one with a, if it's with a particular individual, I would face up to that individual and I'd say, help me understand why I'm feeling like I'm being discriminated against. What is it that I'm doing potentially that I'm unaware of? Because maybe we are doing something to cause that judgment or that sense of discrimination or is it something to do with company policy which is a bigger battle because then it's about changing a company policy so i think first of all it comes back to understanding what is causing the potential discrimination and how can we potentially resolve it and if we can't resolve it what are the other options then and obviously there is legal options as well they are absolutely so in all instances um consult a professional um from whether it be a healthcare perspective, so psychology, psychiatry, life coaching, and or from a legal perspective. Great, Paula. Thank you so much. Thank you. Awesome. And I'll see you again next week. Thank you so much. Okay, so Radio We You Are Family. I'm Rian, and that is our health, our relationship and life coach expert, Paula Quincy. And she'll be back with us next week. And our solution smith, Jason Fidler, told us all about websites and their importance in your business. KSA Radio, where you are family. I'm Rian, and our solutionsmith, Jason Fiddler, is talking to us about websites today. Hello, Rian. Good Hello, to be back. Jason. I, why is it important to have a website? It's like a business card today. It's absolutely essential. It's, 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 like the, it's the greatest expectation any consumer has is what is your online presence? Why is it better to have a webmaster? designing your site and doing it on your, on your own. All right. Well, let's, let's start with your time. And I think this is what some, something that people forget. They, they are able to get um, websites that they can manage and design themselves. Nothing wrong with that. But you will find that a great deal of your time is being spent maintaining your website, maintaining the content. And if there's a technical issue, boy, can that time exponentially increase. So there is a bugbear aspect to, to maintaining a website yourself. Also, having said that, look, some people are control freaks. They want to say everything about it, the, the, where the dot goes, where the, where, the, where the piece of color goes. They want to be able to be in control of that, which is all good and well. But there are um, pros and cons to the process. If you do look for a webmaster, what are some of the key elements that you should look for? All right. Well, webmaster or web design, I think the, time, the, the term has evolved a little bit. But what you want to make sure is that the person has some degree of competency, um, People sometimes say, well, look, I'm looking for experience. That may or may not be necessary today. We have youngsters that are graduating who are extremely talented and know what they're doing. We have people that have just started out but have got an aptitude for it. It really, it's, it's you need to see what this person has done. They have to be able to show you demonstrations of work, even if they're just starting out, 
there must have done some demonstration websites to say, look, this is the kind of style and construction elements that I put into a site, and this is why I do it. Listen to them like you would listen to a car salesman. If it's too good to be true, it usually don't do is. It. <laughs> yeah, don't do it. Tips on how you can optimize your, your website for search engines or phone apps. Right. Well, well, first, first and foremost today, it, it's a stock standard requirement that you are SEO compliant. And, and sorry, compliant makes it sound like it's a regulation. It's not, but it's, it's, a, it's a necessity on, online. So SEO stands for search engine optimization. Some companies charge a great deal of money to do search engine optimization. What they're effectively doing is a form of digital public relations, digital PR. Um, it starts with making sure that words associated with your business, your keywords, your key search phrases, in other words, the phrases that your customer would probably look for in, 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 in Google Chrome or uh, Microsoft Bing in one of the search engines, Yahoo, you know, how would they look for you? That's the search phrase that you're going to be adding into your keywords within your website. It's embedded in the page. It's not obvious copy that you read when you visit the website. It's what the search engines read underneath in the coding. So keywords, you've got to make sure that the content of your website is appropriate to the nature of your business. The search engines, especially Google, because it sets the standard, are far more uh, smart today than they have been in the past. And artificial intelligence is taking over. So you can't bamboozle the search engine with hundreds and hundreds of keywords to push your rankings up. It doesn't work like that anymore. So Google is saying you really need to be uh, attaining four key things, H-U-G-E, helpful, useful, genuine, and emotionally engaging. Okay. So if your website's achieving that, it has a higher likelihood of attaining good search results than not. What inc uh, important features should you include on your website? Well, again, think about it from your customer's point of view. Your website is an extension of your marketing, and it's a critical component in your marketing so you really need to make sure that you're telling your customer who you are. So there's an about us, whether it's on the main page as in sections going down, the new, the new contemporary styles include that, or it's a tab page on its own. The point is, tell people who you are and not just, hi, I'm Jason, I'm a web designer, please use my services. Or, hi, I'm Jason, I'm 32 in a few more months, and <laughs> I've been doing this for X number of years, and... Um, yeah, it, it, you, you've got to be a little bit pragmatic about the information that you provide about your business. So about us is essential. I need to know what is the legitimacy of the service provider or customer that I'm going to be, or the service provider I'm going to be dealing with as a customer. Then you've got to talk about your goods or services. So break it down. You know, how are you going to convey what you're doing? Some people want to have an online shop, an e-commerce facility, and they're going to list all their products and everything else. Think about it from the customer's point of view. If it's too much, they're not going to be interested. So sometimes, and in fact, more often, less is more. It's better to have a nice, clean, easy, accessible website with the right information than not. And make sure your contact information is there. People who would prefer to just have a contact form are doing themselves a disfavor because most users on the internet, research has shown us, do not like using online forms. They, be, they want to click onto an email button and send an email, or particularly in South African terms, people want a phone number. They want to talk to a human being. Lastly, we've spoken about business names before on the show. How important is it to have your whole business name in a web address? 
Okay, so good question. And just to bring you into, into thing, anybody in South Africa, anybody internationally can register a .co.za domain, okay? So technically speaking, if it was available, I could register coca-cola.co.za. Once I'd done that, I would be cyber squatting and I'd be in a little bit of trouble, but it would take a great deal of litigation for me to be forced to release that domain. So I'm telling the business owner, think about this. You could, for example, be called um, Trilenium Consulting Services. It's quite a long name, lots of letters and everything else. By all means, register Trilenium Consulting Services.co.za. Own it. It's there. And you can park the domain. It doesn't have to have the website, but you're preventing a cyber squatter from taking your name away. Then you think to yourself, what's going to be an easier name to put on my business card, to tell somebody over the phone or what have you? And that's where people get clever in terms of finding a domain name that uh, could be an action word. It could be a, um, a, an acronym of their business. So it could be trillserve.co.za, and therefore your email account would be info at trillserve.co.za. So the smart thing is to actually have more than one domain in your business's possession. One is the full operational or registered business name that you can just park, and then, and then uh, some sort of operational or a shortened version that you can use just for purposes of email. Great, Jason. Thank you so much. Pleasure. And I'll have you back again for next week. And we are talking about recruiting employees over the next week or so. Oh, I've got a week to challenge myself for this. <laughs> okay, so Radio you are family. I'm Rian, and that was our solutions best, Jason Fiddler, talking to us about websites. Lawyer Kunika Kirk shared uh, the stories and uh, the behind-the-scenes drama that sometimes unfold in our courtrooms. Okay, so Radio Where You Are family, I'm Rian and I am talking to a very well-known lawyer, Konika Kirk, and his legal team about the world of law today. And I think in the gay community, Kuni doesn't really need an introduction. But for those who don't know Kuni, I'm going to ask him to introduce himself and his team to us and tell us, tell us all about what Kunrad Kirk attorneys are about. Kuni, welcome. Um, I always smile if you say that um, I do not need uh, introduction, but sometimes the name is known, but you don't know what the person does. And that's why we are here today. Um, with me, um, I've got our two candidate attorneys who's also been on Gay SA Radio before. So it's not a, a first time for them. They are not virgins in that sense. <laughs> um, um, and I've got on my right hand side, Johan Barkeisen, who's our senior um, candidate attorney, and then Minka Richter, who's also been with us for three years and you're on five years. Our firm has just celebrated our ninth year, but I've been in the law now for um, 30 years. I just look young. Um, and, but I started out at an, at an early age. And these type of things and the type of work that we do, you cannot really choose in our profession. It happens to you and it depends on, on, on what the background is um, and where you did your articles and what that firm was all about. And I started out at a conveyancing firm and we did a lot of uh, sectional title work and homeowners associations, commercial work. And I also wrote my uh, thesis, my LLB thesis on the law in terms of sectional titles. So to this day, we do um, a lot of levy collections, uh, conduct rules um, in these. Many of us live in these cluster homes or um, homeowners associations or body corporates. And, you know, there's always conduct problems in that they've got too many pets or they you know, listen to gay say radio late at night very loudly. 
um, and that type of idea. And obviously, people not paying their levies, but we also assist um, <clears throat> the uh, annual general meetings and the trustees with their conduct rules and so on. Um, and that is a big part of our work. But actually, anything that there is a money connotation to, if somebody owes you money for what or reason, uh, we can assist. Um, and then we've got a big family law practice um, that we do anti-nuptial contracts um, and we do divorces, um, gay and straight. Um, we've got a lot of gay clients. Um, you know, they say the active LGBT community out there is always about 5% of the of, of that population. But our client um, our clients are normally about 50%. Um, gay and LGBT, and 50% straight. So we've got a much larger, about 50% uh, of our work involves LGBT people as, as, as clients. And that also has to do with the fact that um, I have been involved with these type of things now for, for um, and, and LGBT rights for about 15 years. Also something that I didn't choose. I lay a charge, laid a charge in 2004 against the Afrikaans singer, Dani Boerto, said all gay people are, will go to hell. And I laid a charge against him at the South African Human Rights Commission. And those days, you didn't get that. You really didn't get gay people going to the South African Human Rights Commission. And we do it now all the time. Um, and they thought this is a great uh, opportunity and, and, and we're not going to get any, anywhere. He's his um, record company. And... They actually faxed through my whole complaint to the report newspaper. And the Sunday people started phoning me and said, you're on the first page of the report. And I said, well, why? What did I do? I said, no, you took um, Donnie Boerta and good for you. I said, oh, now why would it be in the report? You know, it's not that important. But it turned out that his, his record company thought, and, well, they obviously did get some exposure, but I also got exposure. Um, and, and people started phoning me about their, 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 their problems that they have. And as you probably would remember, um, we acted, KSA Radio was our client in the Pastor Stephen Anderson matter about two years ago. And that went up right through to the minister. And we did the um, a portfolio, or what he called, he called it, what did he call it, not a, Johan? Dossier, yeah. A file. We, we would call it a file. Uh, he said, I must prepare a dossier for him. It sounds like a police investigation. And poor Johan here had to listen to that pastor's sermons for two days. Was he the same afterwards? No, no, I'm still recovering. No conversions happened recovering. or anything? And his wife was just as horrible. Oh, really? Yeah. Just as horrible. Yeah. She has a blog. We actually oh. got the racism part from her because she said African people should stop um, breeding like rabbits. Um... <laughs> So that helped, obviously, to get him, to get him banned. Um, and then we got approached by people in Botswana, the Botswana uh, Humanitarian Association. They wanted to do the same, and they asked for our dossier. And I got the um, consent from our client, which is KSA Radio. Can I give it to Botswana? And they, and they did. We sent it through to them. And then he was on a radio station, that Pastor Anderson, like we are now, and um, with his hate speech and carrying on that gay people should be stoned. And they took him away right there out of the live radio session. And he was on a plane and back to the USA via a lot of other places. In the meantime, also during that time, the UK banned him. 
And strangely enough, Malawi, right? Malawi wow. is seen as an anti-gay destination. And now recently he wanted to expand to the Caribbean and um, he also then set up or wanted to set up a church in Jamaica. And we got approached by an attorney who also did a campaign. They don't have a human rights commission in Jamaica, but they, they, they set up a campaign there. And um, I sent them that dossier. So the Gaysa Radio dossier traveled uh, the world. And they also got him banned in Jamaica. You know, and Jamaica is known as a very homophobic country. So, strangely enough, in the way that you, you deal, and I started out talking about sectional titles and, and divorces and so on, and then you end up with this type of human rights type of work. So you cannot really choose. Um, but that's not our day-to-day -day job. Our day-to-day -day job is to sort out problems that people have in their day-to-day -day lives, but we're a litigation firm. So um, if you want to sue somebody or somebody is suing you, you, you are the us. people to sue. I think one of my questions that I have here, and uh, I think it's actually a very practical question, and if you've listened to the Workday Jive, you know I sometimes ask very strange things. Now, we've all watched TV series like LA Law or What's the End Things, a Law and Order or... Is it really like that in court? Um, at the moment, seeing that I've been doing it for, for such a long time, I've got now the younger people doing it. Um, and I think um, Yuan and Minka, Minka does mostly the magistrate's court for us and Yuan the high court. Um, but Yuan also appears in, 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 in the magistrate's court. And Minka is regularly there. She's once a week, she, she makes an appearance. So you've got your which, own show, Minka? Yeah, I think Minka can tell us what it's like in a court in South Africa. What, what's it like? Is it anything like we see on TV? Is it all that drama and it's like, like just what's it like in court? Theoretically, it shouldn't be that way. And it should be all about the rules and the procedure. But recently I've, I've come across some situations where it is that way sometimes. And that's just mostly from the people around you that are unprepared or unprofessional. So as exciting as it is, it's actually not really what you want because the rules and the process is actually so important for any court case just so that it's fair, so that both parties can have their case and state their case in a, in a fair and just way. So as exciting as it can be, sometimes that's not the best way. And what's the difference between magistrate court and high court? I think that's something not a lot of people know as well. Well, magistrate court is limited to, I think it's 200,000 rand. Yeah, 200,000. Yes. And the regional to 400,000. Yes. So it's the um, value on your claim. Yes. And you, you also can't claim things like specific performance in the magistrate court. So it's the nature of your claim that dictates whether it goes to high court or, or magistrate court. KSA Radio, where you are family. I'm Rian, and we are continuing our talk with Kunika Kirk and his legal team about courtroom drama and law. I think um, the weirdest court cases you've guys handled, I've, that's one of the other questions I've got. While we've got you in the public eye, what is the weirdest thing you you've had? You said we have only 10 minutes. I, I, I can mean, stretch this. What is some of the weirdest <laughs> highlights you've ever done? Um, well, there's another one that Minka can tell us about, um, and obviously we cannot mention names, but this is a woman that approached um, the court, she owed levies um, to her sectional title. Um, and she approached the court, I think it's now the fourth time that she's trying to apply for decision of the judgment that they've got against her. She's now at her third attorney, I think, losing each and every time. And uh, now the last time was quite 
interesting if 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 Mika can elaborate and tell us what happened there. She has elected to represent herself because um unfortunately you have to be extremely extremely um underprivileged to get um legal help for free. So she in, kind indigent, of just, indigent indigent yes. basically yes. Um she kind of just falls in the middle where she can't get the legal aid help but she also can't afford the the more expensive attorneys. And she now has elected to represent herself. And unfortunately, her documents were not in order. As I said, it's very, very specific to the rules and the procedure. And basically what she's trying to do, there's a different avenue to do that. And as I had explained to her, she she, she did tell me that that I'm I'm killing her and I'm killing her children and I've, I've taken all their money and that between myself and the legal system that we've just completely robbed them. And when it came time for her to, let's call it, testify, because she didn't have anyone else in court to represent her, the magistrate explained the same to her. And she yelled out through the court, and I'm sure everyone here understands that a courtroom is a very, very formal place. And yelling and cell phones and things like that, it's just completely inappropriate and also not the way to do things. So I was quite early on the role on the court role. You have about 40 matters on a court role. I think I was number six or so. And so we our case is heard and she's crying and she's yelling at the magistrate and we're trying to explain to her what what her her avenue would be and she just doesn't stop. And the magistrate then rules on the case and as I'm about to leave she continues to cry. And she cont- the entire court role, she stood in the witness box and cried and was yelling and just completely irrational, really. Yeah, and they actually continued with yeah. the other cases. So they continued with yeah. the other yeah, cases. She was still standing there in the witness box. Yeah. Minka left eventually and came back. We, still, we don't know, maybe she's still there. <laughs> But I, I think a, a very interesting other case of ours would be the Daisy DeMalka thing that we, oh, that yes. we handled. Yes. Now, Daisy DeMalka obviously is a famous poisoner who killed off the family for insurance claims. Yes, Johan was involved there because it's a high court matter. Um, and the background basically is that this client of ours, a male, it's, it's a straight couple, and he suspected that his wife was poisoning him. Now, in the 30 years that I've been in the law, I, did not, I haven't had a poison case before. They, they they hit each other with shovels and do all sorts of strange things. But, um, you know, and, and they, they sometimes say that I'm going to kill you, but they don't actually go and, and do it and try and do it. But the, the client survived um, and he, he came to see us. Um, and maybe Jan can explain how we found out and, and, and the tests and so on and where it is. What poison was she using? Well, the exact chemical is now a bit strange. It's a, it's a household item. She was exploiting a bit of an illness that he had already to try and be a bit subversive. The problem is, especially with your high court matters, usually a bit more serious. And a divorce is usually acrimonious. Naturally, when a relationship goes a bit sour, it goes sour badly. But it gets a bit worse when there are children involved, obviously, because the parties rarely act rational. The children suffer because of it. So in this case, when the client came to see Kuni and said that he suspected and we had it tested, we found the strangest chemicals um, that you would not put in food ever. Well, so, it, it, he has a heart condition um, that he takes medication for. And she somehow found out that um, in, and, and, and don't laugh at this, it's apparently a cream that women apply for sexual arousal. I didn't know something like that existed. But in any case, but in that is a chemical that would also enhance your heart rate, which in each case will institute a heart attack. 
and then he will die of natural causes. Um, and she wouldn't be suspected. But he found out that every time, you know, there was a special occasion and so on, he got ill afterwards and he felt badly. So he, he started suspecting something and he took and he had it tested. And now the last time, um, that was the one thing that she put in. And the last time, she would, they now separate and she would bring the child and say, listen, I cooked and I brought a, a plate of food for you. But he knows by now, right? So immediately off to the lab and had it tested, and it was some sort of a chemical that in, in, uh, uh, has got adrenaline in it that would also bring on, um, in his instance, a heart attack because it will up his heart rate, abnormally high. And, um, and she would put it in the pizza that she buys or in the food that she cooks, and it's actually still um, ongoing in the sense that he has not proceeded uh, to lay any criminal charges because um, his child, who's got, uh, who's with her half of the time and half the time with him, would then be impacted on it. Also, the we got in some criminal experts because this is a civil case and we had a civil law firm, so we had some criminal uh, um, expertise in, um, and they also explained to us that you have to actually basically catch a person red-handed poisoning somebody else, because there can be contamination and there can be. You know, in this whole process that she can say, but, you know, it's, it, it fell in or, you know, he applied it. You have to actually basically catch a person red-handed or film them um, uh, and to prove that, that they actually poisoned the other person. But that's the type of thing that we get, get. We don't get that often, but we do get it. What is the difference between a civil case and a criminal case? Okay, civil case, the two parties are individuals or companies. Um, criminal case, the one party is always the state, um, and that's your Oscar Pretorius and these um, Van Breda, these type of things, where a criminal act has happened. Um, and then everything else is basically civil law. But then also that is divided into labor law. We also don't practice labor law. We just do the civil part. Um, and, and there's subdivisions of the, of the civil law. But if you come to see me for whatever problem you have, and it's not the state that's doing a case against you. That's a civil matter. Great. Kuni, thank you so much for explaining. And thank you guys for having been here. And uh, I think we should be in contact for more of these weird cases. KSI Radio, where you are family. Kuni Kirk, a well-known lawyer and his legal team, telling us all about courtroom drama and law here on KSI Radio today.